following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. We introduced this topic, recognizing that while appealing to a broad audience in name, it's actually very controversial and unpopular in content. Once you get to the nuts and bolts about what genuine spirituality really is, it's understandable why humanity does not like the Gnostic teachings. Specifically, the necessity for chastity, as we've explained in these lectures. Because it is a war against commonly held assumptions, dogmas, habits, beliefs. It's ironic that different spiritual communities abhor the very principle of sexual magic upon which their religions are based. It is an unusual paradox to be attracted to the secret mysticism of religion while at the same time being repulsed by it. Chastity really violates a very precarious sense of self. This teaching goes against the green. And anyone who begins to seriously practice this knowledge comes to confront in him or herself the reality of desire, its struggle, its conflict. And despite the fact that many dislike the sexual aspect of these teachings, it is a general rule of thumb that the more people who agree upon a belief, the greater the probability that it is wrong. In the words of Jesus of Nazareth, 
Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. From the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's also important that when approaching this subject of spiritual warfare, we do so from a point of humility. This is because we should not assume that we are great students, instructors, or missionaries. We should not assume that we are warriors of God because it is all too common to present ourselves to others in the best light, which tends to be primarily for selfish reasons, if we're honest, if we examine ourselves. It is rare to really want to edify the spirit of another person, to really uplift our neighbor and not for ourselves. We likewise should also learn in this path to not assert our will, our beliefs upon other people, but to learn to be a student of everyone, especially one's enemies. We also tend to ignore our weaknesses. It's a natural instinct because the mind does not like us to be conscious of our mistakes. And this is the principle upon which spiritual warfare is realized. Because as we're changing psychologically, fundamentally, against our own defects, we naturally attract negative forces which seek to obstruct our development. This is a defense mechanism. Our own mind, which Samalan Vior referred to as resistance or counter-transference, which is when the ego evades responsibility. We make an error and then the mind tries to hide its mistake. It fights, it resists analysis, observation, comprehension. The ego knows that its life is threatened and that it will die through this work. And so it comes up with many excuses, justifications and evasions, escapism. Whenever we self-observe ourselves and look inside. And while it is difficult to look at ourselves fundamentally, honestly, we state many times that gnosis is lived upon facts. It withers away in abstractions and is difficult to find even in the noblest of thoughts. So we have to be very sincere about our own culpability, our own mistakes, 
because there's a tendency in people within spiritual movements, whenever approaching the study of white and black magic, to blame the oppressor, to condemn sorcerers, to hate one's persecutors. And this is really wrong. We do not transform a situation, a conflict, by reacting with ego, by being filled with fear, with hatred, with antagonism, thinking that we are the representative of God and that we have to punish the evildoer, when in fact this sentiment is precisely the mechanism and the fulcrum upon which this struggle subsists and that there is no end. The reality is that if we wish to overcome black magic within ourselves, especially, we have to understand our own weaknesses, our own faults. And so we have to be very, very sincere. Look at the facts. None of us are really special. And none of us are really spiritual. Because to be a spiritual person really signifies someone like Jesus. Who when he was crucified, he only blessed his enemies. And didn't complain. We can't handle a snide comment at work. An offhand remark. In order for our entire psychology to be churning with revenge. To be spiritual is to be a god with consciousness and power of a planet, a sun, a solar system, a galaxy. We are not divinity. We are the shadow of divinity. We are really demons because anyone who has one ego has perdition inside. And therefore, we have to resolve to die to everything that is false. In truth, the soul is a warrior. And better said, the innermost is the warrior. Our inner divinity fights against our own defects so that we can change. And the more we yield to his response, the greater his effort and force, his realization within us. In the process of becoming perfected, we have to really confront our own flaws. But at the same time, we need to be very careful. We have to be considerate and cautious. If we approach the subject of white and black magic, of spirituality, from the perspective that we already know, then we enter a really serious risk that eventually we're going to learn a very hard and irredeemable lesson once the time and the conditions are right. So let us not think anything of ourselves, to assume, to believe. Instead, let us rely on proven principles 
for self-defense in the spiritual realms, the psychic realms, but also techniques that really transform who we are. So these are principles that we're going to relate today that are very effective. They are expedient. They are powerful. And they allow the soul to really go to task against the obstacles we carry within. I hope that you find these helpful, that you find them impactful and practical for you. Many great spiritual warriors have existed throughout the world mythologies. We have Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, the song of the Lord. We have Perseus, Theseus, Aeneas, and Odysseus among the Greeks. We have Rama in the Ramayana or Hindu epic. Within many Buddhist monasteries, we find the Dharmapalas, the guardians of the sacred Buddhist doctrine who were once demons but through the transformation of divine compassion have become the servants of the law. We also have Prophet Muhammad within Islam who defended himself in Arabia against the black magicians who sought to kill him. There are many examples throughout our histories and mythologies. These narratives are symbols of internal truths, of internal principles. They are archetypes. They are blueprints for the creation of the soul. These are not literally exclusive of some type of history to believe in. Instead, these are conscious truths and symbols that express the language of the consciousness. Despite the diversity of religious forms, characters, names, situations, dramas, conflicts, we find a unifying thread that unites all of these heroes who fight on the path of love. They defend themselves not only through skillful means, but profound wisdom and conscious love for humanity, compassion. Wisdom is the power to perceive. It is the ability to see in an unfiltered and unobstructed way to be free of desire. To not have the ego present to see objectively, clearly, precisely. And conscious love is the understanding of our true nature, our real being. Because when we know who our real being is and have experienced the presence of our inner divinity, we feel great love for those who really cause us to suffer. And therefore, we endure for them. A real spiritual warrior combats their own inner defects 
while respecting the will of others. It is not a battle against other people and their beliefs. It is not about arguing and coercing others to think like we do. It is not about attacking the black magicians who seek to harm us and pull us from the path. This spiritual war is about our own relationship to ourselves. There are two forms of holy war within Islam, which unfortunately have truly degenerated, but their esoteric principle is very unique, but also universal. We have Jihad al-Asghar, the lesser holy war, and Jihad al-Akbar, the greater holy war. It is said that the Prophet Muhammad was speaking to his companions after a battle. He said, in the oral tradition of Islam. You have returned from the lesser holy war to the greater holy war. When asked what the greater holy war was, he said, a servant's striving against his passions. It is impossible to defend oneself from black magic when we ourselves continue to act unconsciously asleep without awareness of who we are, what we are doing, where we are at. Some people become very afraid when they hear these terms, especially jihad and the propaganda, both in East and West. This word simply means striving to go against, to combat. It is said by the Prophet Muhammad that the best striving is a word of truth. It is not about hurting those who do not follow our religion. This is a deviation. And so what is that greatest spiritual war? It is by learning to confront our own problems with efficacy, with clarity, with wisdom, with patience. And then we teach others how to change, not based off of coercion, suppressing or violating the minds of others by arguing on internet forums and social media. It is about giving the example of the teaching through our own fruits, the blossoming of our own consciousness, our soul, our ethics. So true spiritual warfare is realized from a point of humility. And in order to really achieve that rare virtue, we have to be humiliated. Humiliation before honor. This is the principle of initiation. There is a saying from the Hindu tradition from the Bhishma Parva. I believe it's the Mahabharata. This is stated by Sanjaya. They that are desirous of victory do not so much conquer by might and prowess as by truth, compassion, piety, and virtue. 
Fight without any arrogance, for victory is certain to be there where righteousness is. Or as stated in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 4, every valley should be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven shall be made level, and the rough places a plain. People often reference the archetype of the peaceful warrior. It's very common on the internet. Which bears credence to esoteric principles? The human soul or consciousness is a warrior. In Kabbalah, he is the root of our essence, our soul, who has to fight like Lancelot against the dragon, which is our own mind, our lust, our desires, our passions. Tifereth has to overcome great adversity, not with aggression, but with perfect serenity. In a state of equanimity and dispassion, we learn to be like Christ. Salman Vior wrote in his book on sexology, Christ does not react against calumnies, slaps, mockeries, threats, whippings, etc. Christ overwhelms because of his terrific serenity. When crucified, Christ said only, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The I does not exist inside the Christ. This is why he neither reacts nor judges anybody. Let's examine some principles or a myth that demonstrates these essential qualities. We have a very famous Greek myth of Achilles from the Iliad of Homer. In the myth, Achilles' mother, Thetis, was concerned about her child's mortal state. She tried to confer upon him immortality. And so she burned him over fire while anointing his wounds with ambrosia. Afterward, she dunked him in the river Styx, which are the waters of divine immortality and invulnerability. However, when she did this, as you may be familiar, she held him by the heels and didn't wash him there, which made Achilles invulnerable everywhere except for his heel, which is where we get the Achilles heel within anatomy. But what does this represent? Burned by temptations and ordeals. Any initiate like Achilles can be healed with the anointment of divine ambrosia, which is a symbol of chastity, the sexual energy, the creative force. It is really this energy which can heal our greatest wounds which can give us strength, can really make us powerful. Because that power which can give a life to a child is instead conserved and transformed to give birth to a god. The heel and Kabbalah, the tree of life, represents Yasab. It's an internal symbol for how we walk the spiritual path. So if you have dreams about shoes, it is in relation to your sexual life. 
This is why Moses in Exodus could only approach the burning bush, the tree of life, without his sandals. He had to show purity and respect for God in his sexual conduct. So the waters of chastity are the powers of transmutation. And it is the limitless power of the gods. If you've studied any cosmogony, you find water at the central foundation and basis. There is no religion or narrative about divinity without water. It is irrefutable. But it takes familiarity and study and great meditation to go at the heart of what these symbols relate. So here we're just giving one to emphasize these factors. So Achilles was known for being really terrifying. His ferocity was immense when he went into battle and he was unconquerable. A lot of scholars interpret this as blind rage. But the symbol is that it is the intensity of force, the severity of Mars, the spiritual force of love that knows how to go to battle for what is right. Some people like to think of Ares, the god of war, Samael, as someone hateful. But they mistake severity with anger. The Martian force is disciplinary. It is harsh, it is hard to the ego, but it is done from a place of great compassion. A love that is so profound that it resists and endures all types of conflict in order to enact the will of divinity. In the myth of the Iliad, we find that Achilles even fights a river. Some scholars have laughed at this, sadly, ignoring its Kabbalistic. This is a symbol of his battle, or any initiate's battle, with their own lust, because desire lurks within the waters. So in the myth of Achilles, his armor was made by Vulcan, Hephaestus the god of smithery and fire. And so all the great heroes have received the armor from the forgery of Vulcan, which is a symbol of working in a marriage. Because with the fires of a matrimony, the sexual igneous force is harnessed and transformed to give birth to superior vehicles, which are, are the solar bodies that Salman Muir mentions all throughout his writings. Vulcan is the Holy Spirit, the creative power of sex. It is the energy that can give the armory to the soldier of divinity. It is a force and vehicle that allows Christ to be expressed. So with Achilles, what's really interesting is that in the Iliad, there's a great emphasis placed on the artwork of his shield. And a lot of scholars and academics have argued back and forth about what these images represent because you have a figure of great severity and strength, a great warrior who has images of peace and many icons that would seem to contradict his very 
purpose, which is to fight the Achaeans and win back Helen from Troy. So Achilles' shield is embossed with sacred iconography. You see the earth, sea, sun, moon, and constellations. These are representations of mystical states, as we've explained in the lecture on striving and our Sufi principles of meditation course. You see beautiful cities or countries filled with people on his shield, a wedding or a court case, which represents our inner psychology, the psychological country we are always roaming about, usually lost within our own mind, going from defect to defect, identity to identity. We also see a court and a wedding, which is a symbol of karma, the law. You also see a seed or a feuding army, an ambush, a battle. This has to do with psychological warfare against our own faults. Because as the former lecturer mentioned in the beginning of this course, as soon as we begin to conserve our energies, the mind resists and fights to retain and to take back the very energies that gave it life. We are starving the mind. And so therefore a battle ensues. We also see on the shield a field that is plowed for the third time, according to the Iliad. This is a representation of Arcanum 23, the sacred tarot, the plower. Why is the plower plowing a third time? Because the number three relates to the Holy Spirit within Hebraic mysticism, within Kabbalah, the third force of reconciliation, the force that balances all conflict within. So according to the descriptions of the sacred tarot, especially Arcana 23, we find the following verse. The plower is in the act of cultivating the earth and his consciousness. It symbolizes the virtue of humans, a human self-realization. Each arcanum has a transcendental axiom. And for this one, it is, my mill is grinding flour for me and flour for my neighbor. It is how we work in this world to produce physical and spiritual benefit for others. We also see a harvest of a king's estate this signifies that we reap what we sow. Likewise, a vineyard with grape pickers, a very explicit symbol of the transubstantiation of the bread and wine of the Gnostic unction, the Eucharist, how the soul receives Christ. We also see a sheep farm and a herd of straight horned cattle, which represent the solar values of the lamb, the Christ, and the bull of the Egyptian Apis, the Holy Spirit, with an Egyptian mysticism. There is likewise a dance floor with men and women. And what greater dance is there between any species or beings except the perfect matrimony, where then all seven levels of the human being are consummated. We also, and finally, we see a great stream from the ocean on his shield. It is the spiritual path of chastity that leads to the ocean of the absolute, the uncreated light. So all these images represent 
the archetype of the peaceful warrior, an individual who strives within themselves to express the highest ideals of humanity and divinity. Serenity is the ultimate defense. It is the armament and shield we wield in order to endure karma. As Samalan Vyar stated in Treaties of Revolutionary Psychology, the best weapon that a human being can use in life is a correct psychological state. To better understand what spiritual warfare is, we have an interesting case of a German initiate by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. He's very controversial, especially even among Gnostics. Because he was a Gnostic, much in the same manner that Hitler was a Gnostic. Initiates fall because of weaknesses. Hitler's fascination with the occult is very well documented. And this demonstrates how often our curiosity for the arcane, for the esoteric, the obscure, the novel, gets us into trouble. Hitler knew and practiced sexual magic before a Tibetan adept of the Black Lodge came and converted him. Precisely because this Tibetan initiate was able to exploit Hitler's weakness, which was pride. And while Nietzsche also knew the path and provided valuable teachings, he made tremendous mistakes, grave errors that led him to insanity. We have a saying from one of his books, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. It's from the tomb song. Invulnerable am I only in the heel. Nietzsche meant to say that he was invulnerable only in chastity, which was arrogant of him because he eventually fell sexually. It led to him deteriorating in his mind. While some people can really benefit from his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, we have to approach him with caution, with distance. It's interesting that Samal and Vior mentioned in The Perfect Matrimony in his chapter on the two rituals, chapter 12, I believe, how the wise author of Thus Spoke Zarathustra stated, write with blood and you will discover that blood is spirit. So there's wisdom to be taken here. There's some valuable knowledge that we can extract. And we will provide an excerpt from this book to demonstrate how a real spiritual warrior has to find inspiration from any source, knowing how to discriminate for advantages and weaknesses. We accept what is useful and reject what is useless. Therefore, in this way, we avoid fanaticism. We can read from this book and learn from it, even though Nietzsche fell. Much like how we continue to utilize the invocation of Solomon, even though this solar king fell into black magic and void the We 
highlight Nietzsche because we wish to emphasize a major point that people from pretty much every spiritual movement ignore. While we all like to think and declare on social media that we are spiritual warriors, we often ignore that even the greatest warriors have been slain in battle. The question is not only how, but why. The reality is that the enemy found a weakness and exploited it. In this way, the Black Lodge sees a vulnerability in our mind, our defects, which we tend to overlook and ignore. And this is how they capitalize on our mistakes in order to accelerate devolution, to push us in that way, in that direction. How many myths have related this truth? Look at Samson. Look at Heracles. What about Achilles? Despite how great Achilles was in battle, the myths relate, and even in Dante's Inferno, I believe, he's in hell. So what about our boasted spirituality? It really does not mean anything if we remain with flaws which we can gloss over and repress and hide from and label with the intellect, but not really comprehend. And what's even worse for a lot of people is that we can believe that our greatest mistakes are in fact our best friend, our greatest virtues. This is how black magicians think. They don't think they are evil. It's very scary when you think about it. And so we have to be cautious, concerned. Therefore, as evidenced by Nietzsche's quote, invulnerable am I only in the heel. What we think or perceive to be our greatest strength is in fact our greatest weakness. And so what is our psychological image? How do we approach ourselves? How do we relate to ourselves? What do we think about who we are? How do we represent ourselves to others? What is the image, the idol we carry within? The following is from the revolution of the dialectic. We need to undergo a total revolution and a definitive change in this matter of image, values, and identity. The exterior image of a human being and the diverse circumstances that surround them are the exact result of his interior image and of his psychological processes. We'll comment that if we're experiencing a lot of attacks of black magic, it's because our ego is attracting those situations. It is due to karma. So if we want to change the situation and overcome the problem, we have to understand what in us is invoking that influence. We do so by developing the image of our inner self, the spirit, divinity. Samuel Alvaro continues, self-image is different. It is the inner KH, the cosmic human, the cosmos human, our divine prototype, the real being. Image values and identity must be changed radically. This is an integral revolution. We need the identity of the being, the values of the being, and the image of the being. 
So some people may resist this statement, but we ask you to analyze. Nietzsche thought he was strong in his chastity, but how did Samson fall? He trusted Delilah. Why did Troy burn? Because they mistook the Achaeans' means of sabotage as a gift. We don't really have the time and the opportunity to be complacent, to lack prudence, to be very smug with ourselves. We shouldn't assume that we know everything. In fact, it's better to lean on the side of caution because there is too much at risk. This does not mean we become paranoid, fanatic, fearful, morbid. It means to be critical of the ego. to be severe with ourselves, but also to have patience with ourselves. So let's examine a few quotes from Thus Spoke Zarathustra to take out what is useful for our work. I'm gonna provide some commentary on these verses. On war and warriors. We do not want to be spared by our best enemies, nor by those whom we love thoroughly. So let me tell you the truth. Honesty and self-criticism, we could say in the beginning, is essential. This is how we approach self-transformation. We can learn from those who oppose us, who don't agree with us, who don't flatter us, who tell us our errors, especially when we don't like it. We must not spare our ego, our vanity. We have to learn to accept humiliation, to learn when we're wrong. And then in this way, we enter initiation. My brothers in war, I love you thoroughly. I am and I was of your kind. And I am also your best enemy. So let me tell you the truth. Aren't the Gnostic missionaries, we can say, or the masters of the White Lodge, our worst enemy? Salman Vior mentioned many times how people resisted him during lectures. They'd fidget, they'd move, they'd scratch an itch, they'd become very uncomfortable because he spoke openly about the death of the ego, the collective unconscious and egotistical desires of his listeners know that their existence is threatened by the doctrine. Therefore, people and students don't like the teaching. It's why you have synagogues and mosques and churches filled with millions of people because they do not teach how to die to desire. Nietzsche continues, I know of the hatred and envy of your hearts. You are not great enough not to know hatred and envy. Be great enough then not to be ashamed of them. In the beginning, we are filled with a lot of ego. It can be very discouraging. While we are not great enough to be pure and innocent, wise as serpents and harmless as doves, we must be great enough not to be filled with morbidity, with shame, with pessimism for being fallen. Remorse is a different quality. It's important to have 
repentance and recognition of our faults, but it doesn't mean we become filled with the opposite of pride, which is inverted pride. It's shame, pessimism, self-doubt, self-flagellation, etc. We must not identify with negative emotions, egos, which are repressive. We have to comprehend them, not to be identified. And if you cannot be saints of knowledge, at least be its warriors. They are the companions and forerunners of such sainthood. Earlier in this book, thus spoke Zarathustra, Nietzsche explains how, or it's implied that sainthood is mastery, the fifth initiation of fire, which is demonstrated when Zarathustra meets the hermit at the very beginning of this text. If you cannot be a master of major mysteries, at least learn to fight in the way of truth against your faults. I see many soldiers. Would that I saw many warriors. Uniform one calls what they wear. Would that what it conceals were not uniform. It's very common for people to proclaim themselves to be mighty soldiers of God because they believe in a religion. However, what Nietzsche is critiquing here is a tendency in people to wear their religion, their spirituality or their political affiliations like a badge, a uniform, which is pride. However, the apparel does not often proclaim the man or woman, which is a contradiction of Polonius's advice in Shakespeare's Hamlet. People wear and adorn themselves with all sorts of things, religious apparel, regalia, customs, observances, attitudes, platitudes, thinking that this makes them strong. However, if our outward adherence to religion is all we are, if we're not awakening in the internal planes to know these truths, then it's the fact that we are merely cleaning the outside of the cup. We need to clean the inside, stated Jesus in the Gospels, to not be a Pharisee, a fanatic of any tradition. You should have eyes that always seek an enemy, your enemy. We need adversities. We don't like it. It's not pleasant. We complain about it. We don't like it when things in our life go wrong, especially when we start gnosis. But that's a symbol or better said, a realization that these teachings are working because karma then enters our life in order to test us. We need hardship. We need people in situations that contradict who we are. Otherwise, we're never going to grow. That's why Rumi stated it beautifully in one of his poems. How can you become polished like a mirror if you resist every rub? Samalan Vayor, when he was advancing in the later stages of his work, when he was really annihilating the totality of his defects, he often sought people in life who were very adverse to him. He intentionally went out of his way to find people who would condemn and criticize him. 
so that his most hidden defects would emerge. But that's something for a very psychologically clean person to do. I don't advise going out of your way to look for problems because honestly, we don't necessarily have the capacity to transform it. But we should learn to accept our situation and our karma because our being knows what we can handle and what we can do and therefore manages the situations with intelligence. Here's a statement from Nietzsche that's somewhat controversial. And some of you hate at first sight. Your enemy you shall seek. Your war you shall wage for your thoughts. So we wage war against our own mind and for the realization of our most divine principles, which is denominated as thoughts here. And if your thought be vanquished, then your honesty should still find cause for triumph in that. We have to be very severe against our ego, but also very patient because we're going to make a lot of mistakes. If we don't live up to the principles of this tradition, then the honest reflection and recognition of our failings should be a cause for triumph because by recognizing our errors, we can change them. This is humility. You should love peace as a means to new wars and the short peace more than the long. So what war is he talking about? I mean, obviously people read it literally as a physical battle, but instead it's the war within oneself. According to Samal Vior, he stated in The Great Rebellion in a chapter called Decapitation, the worst circumstances of life the most critical situations and the most difficult deeds are always marvelous for intimate self-discovery. The most secret eyes always surface in those unsuspected critical moments and when we least expect them. Unquestionably, if we are alert, we discover ourselves. The most tranquil moments of life are precisely the least favorable for the work upon oneself. Therefore, we should love peace as a means to new wars more ordeal so that we can really radically change and the short piece more than the long. To you, I do not recommend work, but struggle. To you, I do not recommend peace with victory. Work is mental exertion. It's when the mind exerts effort in order to accomplish some kind of task. And of course, this type of Direction of energy does not really produce a lot of deep results. Instead, struggle, which relates to the Arabic striving, jihad, is precisely how the consciousness exerts energy and effort, enforces the will of divinity against the ego. This is the striving or monasticism of the Muslim, to use Prophet Muhammad's words in one of the hadiths, the oral tradition. This is Jihad al-Akbar. Or, as you see in this image of a samurai, the Japanese Bushido, the way of the warrior, which in its ancient roots was a very divine teaching, which unfortunately, like any mysticism and spiritual code, devolved. So we find that when the samurai would commit seppuku, obviously that was a literal interpretation of a symbolic function, how we have to kill our own ego. But when that tradition degenerated, 
Obviously, we see the results that common history would have us believe, or better said, what the samurai had become. So peaceful moments and a lack of hardship are not really conducive for this work. If you really want internal discovery and realizations, we have to face adversity, but don't seek it out. Let it come to you. Your being knows what you can handle, what you can manage, as I said. Let your work be a struggle. Let your peace be a victory. One can be silent and sit still only when one has bow and arrow, else one chatters and quarrels. Let your peace be a victory. So what does it mean that your peace be a victory? You have to be serene when the hammer of karma falls on the anvil of your mind. It is not pleasant to face friction and fire and contradiction and paradox, condemnation and humiliation, uncertainty, doubt. However, if you are serene, then you can really forge something beautiful with yourself, with your soul. You can only be silent and still, concentrated in the remembrance of divinity. When you work with the bow and the arrow, these are symbols of self-observation. The arrow represents concentration. When you stretch a bow towards you to fire an arrow, you are introspecting into your inner worlds. When you aim at your target, you are aware of your surroundings and you're focused on your immediate environment. These are the main principles of mental gymnastics or dynamics. How we comprehend defects. When you don't have knowledge of both the external and internal reality, we can't comprehend the link of our conditioned self in the relationship to external impressions. This results in comprehension or transformation when you understand the interdependence of all things, your mind and phenomena and phenomena with your mind. If you wanna know more about the transformation of life and impressions, you can study the last lecture in our course on beginning self-transformation. Transform your life, it's called. You say it is the good cause that hallows even war. I say unto you, it is the good war that hallows any cause. So Nietzsche's language obviously is very provocative. He intentionally plays with people's assumptions in this book. People think that a noble ideology justifies physical bloodshed. You can simply look at any history book to look at the political or economic systems, the patriotic concepts and beliefs that are propagated in different eras. It doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you follow because according to the subjective logic of the mind, any ideology can be used to glorify violence. And of course this is wrong. However, if you read between the lines here, it is the good war that hallows any cause. What war are we talking about? Or better said, what cause are we supporting? If you use Gurdjieffian terms, it is the being part dog duty, the self-realization of the being. You hallow that cause in you when you really engage with yourself. 
and don't run away from the facts. War and courage have accomplished more great things than love of a neighbor. Not your pity, but your courage has so far saved the unfortunate. If you've really studied this book, you find that Nietzsche is really very much against complacency, admiring our neighbor's ego, loving our neighbor's ego. I believe he states elsewhere that myself I sacrifice to my love and my neighbor is myself. A play on the Christian doctrine, which has unfortunately been misinterpreted to believe that we should love our neighbor's defects. We should love the soul of other people, the spirit of other people, the Christ within other people. You can only do that when you have the courage to save the unfortunate by not letting their ego manipulate your ego to make you act in a mistaken way. But we have to act consciously with our neighbor so that we can teach others to our example. Not pitying others or having, better said, complacency with wrong. Feeling that, feeling bad for someone simply because they're unfortunate. It's really not enough. We have to comprehend others. To have compassion for others. This is very different from pity. Looking down on someone because we think we're in a better position. This is the ego that nature was criticizing here. We have to have the courage to do what's right. What you comprehend from your experiences, especially in the superior worlds, even when people hate you for it. Now, this next line obviously gets Nietzsche into the trouble here. What is good, you ask? To be brave is good. Let the little girl say to be good is what is at the same time pretty and touching. Especially later on in Nietzsche's works, he is misogynistic. To give him credit, at least in this book, before he really went off the deep end, he references women in relation, especially to Kabbalah, in relation to the lunar mechanicity of the mind, and that we have to have solar willpower in order to combat our mistakes. There's a statement that Nietzsche gave in a chapter called on little and old women, little old and young women which someone we are clarified for students because people were confused. Nietzsche stated, you are going to woman, do not forget the whip. So someone on clarified that Nietzsche was intentionally provoking people who don't really know, who don't study the doctrine. He played with words. In reality, what was meant here is that if men are going to their wives, husband to their partner, they have to dominate their lust with the whip of willpower. Not because one is obviously going with the whip to be oppressive. They call you heartless, but you have a heart and I love you for being ashamed to show it. People think Samon Vior and these teachings are very cruel, that they're unsympathetic. However, the initiates or alchemists have a heart and that they are honorable because they don't allow their own pain 
to obscure the message. You are ashamed of your flood, while others are ashamed of their ebb. So masters have restraint because they're humble. They don't wish to make others feel ashamed for their lack of being. If you want to draw a comparison here, there's this line from King Lear by Shakespeare. Have more than thou showest, speak less than thou knowest. You are ugly. Well then, my brothers, wrap the sublime around you, the cloak of the ugly. People often become very concerned about their appearances. And while we should always dress well, all out of respect for our neighbor, we should not be filled with shame for our body or features. Remember that according to Nietzsche, it's funny reason is that the reason why the Greeks sentenced Socrates to death was because they thought he was so ugly. It's a funny anecdote, but we have to remember that Socrates is an initiate gained a huge following because of his sublime character, his transmutation, his work in alchemy. And when your soul becomes great, then it becomes prankish. And in your sublimity, there is sarcasm. I know you. We often get the question if people in Gnosis ever laugh or joke around, or for people who are just serious all the time. Now, the greatest masters have a great sense of humor. It's funny that there are people who think Jesus could never tell a joke, who is an inhabitant of the highest dimension known to us, the realm of complete liberation and happiness. So people who are working seriously in this path need a healthy dose of humor. We have to find joy even in hardship because we see the results, even if they may seem sporadic or withheld. We have to learn not to be infected with morbidity, with pessimism, with sourness. If you are dark and negative, we have to examine our application of the teaching. In reality, a lot of this stems from not really maintaining chastity for most people. Sublimating the energy, becoming sublime, becoming holy. When you learn to really be faithful to your transmutation practice, you will understand divine humor, like the divine comedy of Dante. Nietzsche continues. In sarcasm, the prankster and the weakling meet, but they misunderstand each other. I know you. A weak person is sarcastic with ego, is coercive, is cruel with his or her words. The initiate knows how to have fun, to be awake and happy, to be balanced. These two are very distinct from each other. They don't agree. The humor of a initiate and the humor of a, whom we could say, Eddie Murphy and his stand-up shows, very different quality of mind. You may have only enemies whom you can hate, not enemies you despise. You must be proud of your enemy. Then the successes of your enemy are your successes too. Very difficult statement, but let's read between the lines here. If you despise someone, you feel that you're superior. 
you think you have nothing to learn from them. But if you have the ego of hatred or enmity manifest there in your relationship, we recognize that this person is provoking our ego. And this should inspire us to work upon our mind. If we lack respect for our enemies then, or those who hurt our vanity and pride, we're not going to be open to learning from them. And really, according to Buddhism, especially Tibetan Buddhism, the greatest jewel that one can receive is an enemy, someone who really brings out your faults. Without confronting them, we can't really change. Recalcitrance. That is the nobility of slaves. So recalcitrance means stubbornness. To be attached and addicted to suffering is to be enslaved as a conscientious to the mind. To not have any will to change makes us stubborn, makes us animals. Your nobility should be obedience. We can say that our real nobility of character comes from when we obey our intuition, our inner divinity, our being. Your very commanding should be in obeying. So when we act with conscious willpower, with comprehension, with remembrance of divine truth, it's because we obey our inner God from our heart, our intuition. To a good warrior, thou shalt sounds more agreeable than I will. And everything you like, you should first let yourself be commanded to do. So a spiritual warrior obeys the divine law which is chastity. Thou shalt not commit fornication, adultery, covetousness of our neighbor's goods, etc. We have to leave behind personal will and enact Christ's will. We let our being command us in the right moment through intuitions, through hunches, through guiding us in the moment, inspiring us what to say, do, think, and act in a given circumstance. Your love of life should be, shall be, love of your highest hope. And your highest hope shall be the highest thought of life. Your highest thought, however, you should receive as a command from me. And it is. Man is something that shall be overcome. What is the highest hope, he mentions? It is the self-realization of the rebel Christ. The intimate Christ or the superhuman within us. This should be the source of our highest thoughts and aspirations. So this path is learned and predicated upon one principle. It is that our current state as intellectual animals is but a bridge to the divine, a means and not an end. Thus, live your life of obedience and war. What matters long life? What warrior wants to be spared? So why should we want to be attached to a long life of debility, of complacency with wrong, with ego? What warrior wants to spare his ego? He or she instead has to fight a very difficult battle, a cruel war to the death, in the words of Samal and Bayor. I do not spare you. I love you thoroughly, my brothers in war. Thus spoke Zarathustra. We're going to examine a couple principles that are really important when we want to ground ourselves. In evaluating our internal state, as well as examining certain faults and errors that we can rectify, even on a basic level. 
we have the collective mind and individuality. These are distinct types of thinking, which we can find numerous examples in humanity. Any type of group thinking, collectivist thoughts, especially we find in religions and political ideologies, relates to a, the tendency of the animal mind to belong to a group. However, merely going along with the flow of others doesn't guarantee that we know where we're at or what we are doing. Religions tend to be very popular because, as I said, they don't teach Buddhist annihilation. They don't teach the death of the self. We find collective mind in relation to any type of school or system, we can say. And of course, we find it in Gnosis too. As with any spiritual group where we attend because we feel a sense of belonging. And of course, the spiritual community is beautiful and necessary, but it's important to transcend that. We have to learn to become individuals. An individual evaluates, discriminates, and understands diverse teachings, diverse paths, knowledge, wisdom. It means to really understand the autonomy of one's inner being. Individuality is a very sacred thing, says Salman Vior. Right now, we have a multiplicity of mind. In one moment, our anger emerges. We feel pride in the next. Vanity follows with these different thoughts, feelings, and impulses. Suddenly, we're overtaken by fear, instinct, desire. Our life tends to be pulled and pushed around by multiple aggregates. So in truth, because we have a multiplicity of conflicting desires, we can state with clarity that we don't yet possess individuality. And this is something very important to recognize from experience, not merely to accept as a belief, but to confront as a crude reality. So long as we are not integral, we don't unify the different parts of the consciousness which are trapped in all these different defects, it means that we're not going to be unified in our will and our efforts. We are 97% ego, according to Salman Dior. We have 3% consciousness that is free, which needs to be integrated and awakened so that by working on the rest of our faults, we begin to awaken more and more consciousness from conditioned self to unconditioned perception. In this way, we become, we start to become unified, singular, whole. When we are a multiplicity, our mind becomes diverted and diluted through attachments, through prejudices, through beliefs, through concepts of mother flag, of country, of schools, of religions, of orders, and sects. It's unfortunate that Humanity is very much invested in belonging to a group, even when their ideologies or thinking contradict others or aggressively assert dominance over others. This is an animal tendency. You find it in the animal kingdom. It is not the quality of a real human being. Human beings respect the will of others. 
one does not assert their way of thinking, feeling, and acting upon any other individual. This is very important because without recognizing the multiplicity of our distractions, we become fascinated. The most that a spiritual school can give you are teachings and practices that can really help you to change, to acquire knowledge for yourself, experience for yourself, to learn to think and feel and understand for yourself. Therefore, we don't believe in anything. We're not here to teach you to believe in these principles. These are something that you can verify from experience. It is a fundamental axiom in nature of reality. But in order to do that, we have to learn to overcome many ancestral prejudices and fears. The fear that I won't belong if I think or feel or study or practice this type of knowledge. This is a very common sentiment for many people. You can even read a chapter in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which very beautifully, probably his best writing in the book called On the Way of the Creator. You can access the article on chicagognosis.org where you feel the pain when really entering into yourself reflectively and changing your error, how people around you begin to see that you're not who you used to be. And so that can become a real source of conflict, of struggle. But it's important to reflect upon our experiences, our consciousness, to not merely accept or believe or disbelieve anything, but to verify, to experiment, to evaluate, to perceive, to know. So spiritual warriors are defined not only by their prowess, their skill, and their efficacy, but by their virtue. We have to understand that it's not enough just to love somebody, to have compassion for somebody, to really feel for someone who is suffering. You have to have effective methods that rectify the problem. Therefore, real initiates are examples of humility and love, conscious love. They have the wisdom and the inspiration to help. You can't help others when you don't know how. You can have the inspiration to do so. But if you're not trained in expedient means in their skillful application in their utility with a different context, then even our greatest love for others cannot do anything. You can't apply such methods to help others when we lack compassion and lacking understanding of people's suffering. Otherwise, we have selfish motives. We're not seeking to really edify the spirituality of others, but to enthrone and idolize our vanity and pride. This is why we study Buddhism especially. We study bodhicitta and the paramitas. These are essential tenets of Tibetan Mahayana Buddhism. Bodhicitta means the enlightened 
awakened mind and heart of compassion. Bodhi means enlightened in Sanskrit. Wisdom, awakened, awakening. Chitta means mind, heart, or aim. This traditionally in Buddhist studies has to do with the divine aspiration to work for self-realization, perfection, for the benefit of others, to bring others out of suffering. And the paramitas are the principles and the laws that help one to achieve that in a very systematic and divine and practical way. We recommend reading The Way of the Bodhisattva by Shanti Deva, especially, or The Path of the Bodhisattva course on Glorian.org. In truth, these paramitas refer to that which has reached the other shore. It is the quality of consciousness that one must enact in order to really empower oneself, one's spirit, one's soul. The first is generosity, to have the longing and the aspiration to help others, to feel love for others in a conscious way. However, this has to be developed with ethics. This is why we study many traditions and religions, because we learn not to steal, not to lie, not to kill, not to fornicate, not to adulterate. While these are codes that apply to physical life, they also apply to our mind stream. So even though we may not be killing people physically, we can kill with a sarcastic look, with a sardonic smile. We can commit fornication and adultery through our gaze. Even Jesus said, you should not commit adultery, but anyone who looks after a woman or the opposite sex out of lust has committed adultery in their heart. It's a psychological teaching. Ethics has to do with restraining your defects, with understanding them. But of course, as you're working to fulfill these principles, we need patience. It's not easy to endure the reality of our mind. It can be very horrifying. And many people, when they see themselves for what they are, they want to run away. And many do. However, when you learn patience, you are enduring your own ego and also the afflictions of other people, recognizing that other people are not necessarily responsible for their actions. We're all asleep. We all make mistakes. We're not conscious of what we do unless we're really self-observing and remembering divinity. We have to recognize that other people are afflicted by conditioned state of mind. And therefore, we have to have compassion for them. We have to be patient to endure their criticism or their sarcasm. As you're enduring patiently the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, you learn to enact heroic effort, diligence, practicing every day, doing your best, studying what you can, applying as much as you can, looking at your mistakes, your faults, but not being filled with morbidity and shame, but learning to enact superior laws. Heroic effort has to do with our willpower, Christ's will, superior will, divine will. As you're applying your consciousness towards different endeavors in life, we develop meditative concentration. We learn to focus on one activity and thing without having to think of anything else. This allows us to develop penetrating wisdom or insight comprehension of a given problem. 
study the paramitas, they're very deep. We're gonna give a course on the way of the Bodhisattva at some point, but here we're just giving a brief overview. What is psychological equilibrium? It is the conscious management of our three brains, the intellect, the emotions, and the motor instinctive sexual sentiment. Balance, equanimity, serenity is necessary if we really want to disarm very unpleasant situations. However, while it's beautiful to acquire this and develop it, maintain it, maintain it, inner equilibrium is merely the platform upon which genuine insight can arrive. Without clarity of attention, we can't really perceive clearly. Psychological equilibrium is necessary for true effective magical operations and self-defense. Obviously, we're not going to be perfect in the beginning, but you learn through trial and error how to maintain stability of concentration and remembrance of divinity as you face different circumstances, different difficult situations. The purpose of the conjurations and the prayers is to help you stabilize your mind, your emotions, your body, your impulses. You don't begin with perfection, but when you apply consistently these techniques, when you need them, you learn how to balance yourself. Sometimes prayers and conjurations and incense are really needed more than other instances of life. However, when you're consistent, we cumulatively saturate our psychology, our atmosphere, our home with positive energy. This makes it much easier for us to work. It's like a vacuum in which we can really put into it our deepest longings and our home should reflect our spiritual life. We should really make our home like a temple. These energies really support us when we need them most. But learning to balance yourself, learning to balance ourselves takes time. We reach our goals in accordance with the consistency and the depth of our practice. So if we get angry or upset during the day, we're wasting psychological energy, we lose our balance, even if but for a moment, we have to really rely on our ethics. We have to curtail desires and negative thoughts, negative emotions, negative actions, because we recognize from experience how these certain behaviors make us suffer and make other people suffer. So don't run away from pain, look at it. You gain balance by looking at it calmly, serenely, and not identifying with it. This is a very delicate skill that takes a lot of time to master. So don't think you're going to get it in one day or even after a few years. But gradually with time, you begin to retrospect and see how your state of being has changed. And this gives us genuine faith. So conscious control is necessary. We should not repress or justify our ego. Comprehension is a third force. It's when you look at something without giving into it or pushing it away. You simply understand its function. This is equanimity, serenity. If you break your ethical discipline, you get mad, as we all do, when you should be kind and considerate. We have to reflect on the egos that manifested in those moments. This is why retrospection meditation is essential. So we need some degree of self-discrimination. We need understanding. We need to apply the techniques in order for them to work. But like you're riding a bike, it takes time. It takes practice. You're not going to be perfect. 
we learn to balance ourselves so that we don't make serious mistakes. And obviously your divinity will guide you in that process. Without psychological equilibrium, we can't really respond appropriately to life. So this is something we have to verify for ourselves. You know, when dangerous or difficult situations arise, we can use the prayer and conjurations of this teaching so as to protect ourselves. Meditation is fundamental. We've given different courses on meditation on our website, but also on gloran.org. We have a variety of different teachings that discuss how to meditate. This is the daily bread of the Gnostic. I'm just going to summarize a very brief teaching, which gets at the heart of why we practice this science. There are three principles and stages of meditation. Discovery, judgment, execution. Discovery has to do with identifying our weaknesses. We can only do that when we're observing ourselves actively. We're looking within as the different impressions of life stream within our consciousness. And we learn to observe the different egos that emerge spontaneously without our expecting it in the moment. We have to see that we are separate from the ego, separate from desire. When you discover that you are not the ego, when you're not desired, you gain a quality of joy because you recognize a fault that you can meditate upon later or even then, depending on your circumstances, so that you can enter judgment. Judgment is when you close up all your senses, you introspect within, you relax. You can do mantras or pranayama, transmutation exercises to calm your mind, and you visualize the different events of your day. You review them, retrospect, so that you can look at the facts. What defects emerge in a certain situation? Examine the ones that you discovered. And in this way, as you're reflecting upon them, praying for inner guidance and understanding, your divine mother can give or provide you with judgment, discrimination, conscious understanding of the fault. When you've comprehended an ego, you ask for elimination. You pray for it. You can do so within the meditation itself or even with alchemy if you're married. Study the revolution of the dialectic and treaties of revolutionary psychology as well as the Great Rebellion. These books explain this process very beautifully. Transmutation is also essential. The preservation of the life force is the source of virtue. So the word virility, sexual potency, relates to virtue. To become a virya, a Sanskrit word for a warrior. You cannot really go against your defects if you're feeding them. And the main one is lust. This is why within the teachings, we speak very openly and clearly about the need to refrain from orgasm, from lustful activities, but also not only just conserving that energy, but transforming it, directing it with will. It's not enough to be abstinent, to just contain the sex strategy and not do anything with it. If you put gasoline in a car and don't drive it for three to six months, eventually the gasoline will degrade. And the same thing happens to people spiritually. When that energy is not in use, it's not flowing up the spine, 
through intentional practices or deep devotion within listening to classical music and other prayers, then that energy is going to devolve. So conserve the energy, raise it up your spine. You can do mantras and vocalizations with the chakras to direct the creative energy towards, towards those centers. You can do pranayama, sexual alchemy. We'll have some resources at the end that you can rely on to study more deeply about this. But transmutation is simply how we carry over and transform the brute entity of our sexual matter into spiritual force. It is what gives us virtue. It is virya, the essence of a spiritual warrior. If you lose the energy, then you've lost the battle, so to speak, or lost the skirmish, depending on the magnitude of the fault. But if you wish to become like a Valkyria, a Valkyrie, a warrior of Valhalla, according to the Nordic mythology, we learn to drink that ambrosia from the horn of the gods, which is a symbol of sexual potency. We should also take care of our body, our home, our health, and our cleanliness. It's important to get enough exercise in our day to manage our diet well, to be as balanced as we can, to engage in constructive activities. I'd like to relate some words for you from the Yellow Book, I believe, by uh, Samal and Bjorn where he explains some principles about this, which are simple, but very effective and very important to realize. The Gnostic must be temperate. He must not slander people. He should not be gluttonous or lazy. As a rule, the Gnostic must retire to the bedroom at 10 p.m. daily in order to practice internal meditation. The Gnostic must rise at dawn in order to practice all of his esoteric exercises. The Gnostic must be a clean, tidy, decent, honest, and upright person. He should always be punctual and happy, never angry with anyone, nor should he be against anyone in any way. The devotee should shower or wash himself daily, and he should dress presentably. The Gnostic who never washes himself or is in great disorder causes damage to humanity in such a way that with his bad taste may drive people away from the Gnostic studies. For example, people may say, people might say, if this is what Gnostics are like, I don't want to enter these studies. I don't want to degenerate myself, etc. So specifically, our diet, our temperament and needs are gonna be unique, but we have to find whatever works for us in terms of a regiment, health, cleanliness and balanced diet. So we need purity of mind, body and heart. Take care of our home, let our home be our temple. Every time you go home, it should be a place of inspiration and comfort for you. If it's disorganized and in disarray, if it's chaotic, change it. Take small steps. Start with one room. Tie it up in accordance with whatever is your time and ability and make the effort for a space in which you can really thrive. Take care of your health. Don't smoke. Don't drink alcohol. Obviously, don't do drugs because these elements condition the consciousness. They don't awaken the free consciousness but that which is trapped within defects. So uh, this is an obvious thing. It's also, also important to be in harmony with superior laws. We have to understand how karma works. It's 
important to remember that actions produce related consequences, that there is certainty within cause and effect. If we act in, with inferior states of, uh, of mind and being, we will suffer and make others suffer. Likewise, the consequences are greater than the action. This is the second principle of karma. Sometimes we like to think that our actions are meaningless. We may feel doubt. But the truth is that just as you throw a stone into a lake, your action reverberates within nature. It expands towards other beings. And so the consequences are going to magnify, amplify. For example, if you have a angry person speaking to an audience on television, you can have millions of people become upset. And this is very easy to see when looking at the news where we see politicians and political figures who say what they say and provoke the multitudes and the consequences thereof. So the consequences are greater than the action. So if we act positively, then our actions will produce beneficial results. It'll magnify, it'll amplify. The third principle of karma is that you cannot receive the consequence without committing its corresponding action. And this is important because if you wanna be in harmony with your being, you have to fulfill the causes for their fruition. You cannot realize divinity if you don't practice, if you don't really make efforts in your daily life, if you don't fulfill ethical conduct. The fourth principle of karma, which is the last that Song Kabad gives in his Lamrim Chenmo, great treatise on the stage of the path of enlightenment. Once an action is performed, the consequence, consequence cannot be erased. So we can't take back the bullet. It's impossible. When an action is performed, it is permanent. However, there is a superior law, which is forgiveness, which is mercy. A superior law transcends an inferior law. So even if we make a mistake, if we really have a lot of remorse and repentance, we can rectify it if we act consciously. And in this way, we, have, we can avoid many consequences that are very painful. We avoid the law of retribution, of coercion, of pain. It's important that when we study these teachings that we have a broad and deep sense of the different aspects of this knowledge. While Salman Vyar mentioned how we should avoid intellectualism or overly relying on the mind, it's important that we study the different aspects of this teaching in relation to our spiritual life. We can read a little bit, but apply greatly to our life and meditate more on its meaning. People who do not have an intellectual sense of what the teachings involve create a lot of problems. It's very evident in, in many spiritual communities that people who only study a, a partial aspect of this doctrine or their religion, neglecting the rest, can become very fanatical and dogmatic and even very judgmental of people it's very it was very common in the Western esoteric tradition where people were developing clairvoyant powers, the ability to see into other people's minds, especially imagination, we can say. But the problem was that because people did not study the teachings, were not educated, they saw things in other people that were very blasphemous and disturbing, and therefore judged those people physically. Sometimes there have been people who've had dreams about their neighbor and then 
mistaking those dreams for reality end up in the physical world slandering that person, condemning them as a black magician, a criminal, an adulterer, a fornicator, etc. Even when these people are completely innocent. So we have to learn to question what we perceive. But the only way that you're going to do that is if you know what the diverse prophets and teachers have emphasized in their scriptures. For us, we study Salman Bior's writings because they're most explicit. But even then, there are people who don't read what Salman Bior wrote and they teach and practice this doctrine, but continue to gossip about other people, referring to them as sorcerers and demons and black magicians. And this type of behavior has destroyed many groups. It's very sad. The truth is that someone who is very educated about ethics and theosophy and Rosicrucianism and compassion and different principles and truths and scriptures, not from an intellectual position alone, but from experience, that person is not going to be fooled easily. Because by looking at a certain phenomena within one's imagination or clairvoyance, without the influence of the ego, but in remembrance of the advice of the prophets, one gains a comprehension that's very deep. And therefore, it does not really attack others. I believe there's a saying by Ibn Arabi, who's one of the Sufi masters, the greatest of his tradition, who said that even if you know someone is a devil, a demon, a Satan, it's wrong to go out to the public and condemn them. By their fruits, you will know them. We can't judge anybody. Personally, I don't go around calling people black magicians. I don't go around publicly doing that, even though I've had experiences with certain people and certain groups. It's important not to judge people. If you're waking up consciously then and studying the teachings, then you're not going to be fooled easily. Instead, we develop an intellectual culture. I'd like to read for you a few quotes from the book Sexology by Salman Bior. He explains these principles very beautifully, very explicitly. The clairvoyant is not to blame for the errors, such as seeing other people as demons. The cause of all those errors is the lack of intellectual culture and the lack of respect towards our neighbor. The memories of all those errors that we committed in our past reincarnations live within our subconsciousness. The clairvoyant without intellectual culture, sees all of those errors from the past, then he gets confused, and the outcome is calumny against just and honorable people. The cultured clairvoyant, the intellectual clairvoyant, who has studied psychiatry, theosophy, psychology, Rosicrucianism, etc., does not fall into such errors because he has intellectual discipline. The cultured, educated, respectful, and intellectually disciplined clairvoyant enjoys illuminated intellection. He knows how to read the subconsciousness of nature with complete cognizance. The cultured, educated, respectful, and intellectually disciplined clairvoyant is capable of retrospectively studying the whole history of the earth and its root races. He is an illuminated clairvoyant. We disseminate spiritual intellectual culture, decency, refinement, logical analysis, conceptual synthesis, academic culture, higher mathematics, philosophy, science, art, religion, etc. Therefore, in no way whatsoever are we willing to continue to accept the gossip of hallucinating people nor the madness of dreamers. 
So our perceptions can be easily influenced by other people. An example of this is when a family member can relate a bad encounter they had with a former friend. We can even hear such a narrative and we crystallize an image in our mind about such a person. Therefore, we see them as bad, demonic, unethical, etc. Therefore, we have many bad impressions of people that we've never even met or known. And this is a very common phenomenon. So all of this is unconscious. But there are people who exist, black magicians, who know how to influence the mind of others. They know how the mind functions. And therefore, they have a lot of tactics and utility and impact to manipulate people consciously in evil. So be careful, but at the same time, don't be paranoid. Study the teachings, apply them, and don't judge other people from what you see. Because even if so-and-so may be a black magician who is attacking you, causing you harm, you have to look inside your own mind to see if you are sinless. Because let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Finally, we'll talk about white magic. People who are in military training, they study various disciplines to be well-rounded. When they study combat training, they may study a variety of martial arts and disciplines, exercises, so that they can be skilled to apply or to apply different remedies and then specific situations so that they can neutralize threats. The important thing to remember is that these practices are not a game. They are very powerful. And when you apply them with sexual energy, and consciousness, you get results. These rituals are exceptional. And it's important to bear in mind that we have to treat them with respect. The following is from Samalan Bior in The Perfect Matrimony. All rituals have to do with blood and semen. Ritual is a double-edged sword that defends and gives life to the pure and virtuous, but hurts and destroys the impure and tenebrous. Ritual is more powerful than dynamite in the night. One deals with nuclear forces in a ritual. Atomic energy is a gift of God that can heal just as it can kill. Therefore, every temple within the holy, within which the holy Gnostic unction is celebrated is in fact, and for this reason, an atomic energy plant. In Atlantis as well, black magicians use similar rituals combined with sexual forces. The result of those abuses was the sinking of this continent that had previously reached an extremely high level of civilization. So testing and experimenting just for the sake of doing it doesn't really produce anything. So we have to work with exercises consistently, daily, like with elemental magic, ceremonial magic, and even sexual magic, especially just once a day if you're married. We don't get results if we're intermittent, but if we're disciplined, all these practices help us to accumulate Christic force, nuclear energy, so that when we're conscious and wielding those forces with intelligence and wisdom, we can really procure the benefit and healing of humanity. In conclusion, we have a few books. If you wanna know more about the role of some of these exercises and how to really go against your own mind, study the revolution of the dialectic, but also the major mysteries by Samalan Vior. These books teach you a lot about practical techniques and ritual and exercises especially uh, major mysteries, which when combined with meditation produce marvelous results so that we can really advance quickly with patience and with love. So at this point in time, I'd like to open up the floor to questions.
I say we have a question. Can you speak a bit on not allowing yourself to be a doormat for abuse, but practicing patience with those whom are aggressive? It's a great question. There's a fine balance to be found in each circumstance. It's important to remember that we have to really forgive other people, even when it's very difficult and it's painful. Samuel Vior mentioned how our progress is determined based on our forgiveness of others. Now, we have to learn for, to forgive people, to have compassion for them, to understand why they act in ways that are harmful and mistaken ways. And we have to learn to be patient to endure certain situations that we know we can't change. But if there's something that we can do, then we should definitely act. Not with anger, not with pride, not with aggression, not with coercion. We have to learn to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves, according to the gospel. To be wise as a serpent means to know how to direct the sexual energy without harming others. And that's the symbol of the dove, the Holy Spirit. If you find that a situation is very toxic for you, a certain relationship, it can be good to end it. But you have to really meditate and understand what the consequences are thereof. But if there are situations that you can't change, no matter what your job or life may be leading you to or towards, we can learn to endure patiently the abuses of others when we have understanding of their situation. Now, being a doormat is one thing. You know, we can really yield to people and attempt and work to perfect a space within ourselves that is not afflicted by all of this. But if you find that you can't transform the situation well, that it's creating more problems for you, then it could be good to gain some space if you need to or to try to. But if there's nothing you can do, obviously, we have to endure it. But if there's something that we can do, then, of course, it's contingent upon us to act appropriately with the love and respect that we would long for another person to give to us in the same situation if we were the aggressor. So obviously, if there's physical violence, then yeah, you, you need to get out of the situation, obviously. That's a serious problem. But uh, in terms of emotional abuse, too, that can be a challenging thing. You have to really gauge your heart, what it is that, you know, your innermost wants you to do in the situation. That's why meditation is so essential. There isn't a perfect black and white answer for every single circumstance. But you want to gauge in yourself your own capacity for transforming a situation. And if you can't, then... Find some space and time and ability by which you can. And go to your innermost to guide you about how to approach a certain person in the physical world. Your innermost can show you in meditation what you need to do. So rely on the wisdom of your being because he can provide you 
really a lot of comfort. When you know what divinity wants for you, it's the situation dissolves. There's no pain there. It's usually when we're uncertain about what we need to do in our life that we struggle and churn in the mud, so to speak. I hope that answers your question. Another question? Can you speak a bit on the ego? What is it exactly and how to use it in its proper form? So we explained in the courses on psychology how the ego is the self that we identify with. It is a conditioned state of being. It is anger, pride, lust, vanity, hatred, gluttony, laziness, defects, everything that is wrong and creates mistakes and problems for us. The consciousness, the essence is the soul that for most of us is trapped in large proportions within the ego, within desire. The ego says, I want, I crave, I need, I desire, and acts selfishly. The consciousness knows how to act for the benefit of others. It is the virtues of our inner divinity. I recommend you study treaties of revolutionary psychology, especially that'll help clarify for you what the ego is, what the self is, what is the consciousness, and what is personality, especially. You can also study The Great Rebellion, which is a wonderful companion book by Salman VR to the text I mentioned. We have a question. When you speak on judging others, can you elaborate more on judging another versus recognizing others by their actions? Would that not then be a form of judging? Yes, that's a very good question. It's a very nuanced thing. You have to examine your mind. Obviously, we can make observations about people, which are very accurate. And obviously, people can make observations about us, which are even more accurate. Because in truth, people tend to see us, another, better said, people tend to see us and other people more accurately than we see ourselves. We tend to be very blindsided by our own predispositions, character traits, habits, etc. The ego judges people, makes a concept or an idea, a belief, an assumption, an attitude towards another person based on a perception. But those perceptions tend to be very flawed. They're not objective. They are conditioned usually by our own defects like anger and pride, which may see a fault in others that isn't necessarily there. And in truth, it's a common thing where the very quality and attribute we project onto others is really a reflection of our own mind that we refuse to see in ourselves and that which we label on other people. However, a clairvoyant like Christ or Buddha or Muhammad, masters who really annihilated all of their ego, they are able to see other people very objectively and clearly, but they don't judge people. They don't judge other people. They don't criticize them. They don't assume or label them or say, oh, such and such is a demon, a sorcerer, a black magician. The reality is that Christ, as I referenced in an earlier quote, does not have an eye and therefore does not judge or slander people. Now, we have to judge ourselves, judge our own defects, be very critical with our own selves. Not as an ego saying I'm such a bad person and feeling shame, but looking objectively with our own conscious abilities, our conscience. 
But in reality, a master who has no ego is seeing other people clearly for who they are, doesn't judge them. This is why Jesus even said to the Pharisees and uh, Mary Magdalene, when she was being, uh, people were trying to stone her, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And he said unto Mary Magdalene, when the Pharisees left, I don't judge you, but go and do not sin again. That's comprehension. That's love. One can be strong and severe with a person, but without judging them. But that takes a lot of development and skill, which unfortunately for most beginners and us is not really manifest. So there's a comment or question. Did you say that married people benefit from having sex once a day? Uh, married couples can practice sexual alchemy only once a day, no more. So there's a certain pause that needs to be fulfilled, the creative magnetic pause in which the couple's energies settle and subside and rejuvenate and regenerate after practicing alchemy. You can study that in The Mystery of the Golden Flower by Samal and Vior. People who enter the sexual act more than once a day, you know, more than once in 24 hours, they create a great crime. They violate a law of the Holy Spirit, which is chastity, because one can only practice once a day. Those energies have to stabilize and balance and harmonize, especially when it's been transmuted by the couple. Study the mystery of the golden flower. That explains that concept very well. We have a question I, or a statement. I realize in my war against self, myself and my inner work, my lack of willpower against lust. I feel like I am a roller coaster up and down. It's very common for people in the beginning, but with consistent practice and application, as you really begin to renounce lust and eliminate its causes, you gain a temperance and stability, which is very profound. And it begins to emanate and pervade and penetrate every aspect of your life. So be patient. Don't give up. You can develop serenity and temperance and stability when you really commit to chastity. And if you make mistakes, obviously, change them, rectify them, but more importantly, prevent them. And that way you avoid the roller coaster going up and down. Things get to set, begin to settle in your mind stream, even to the point that when you have difficult situations in life, you don't get phased by them. You can confront them with dispassion and conscious will. We have a question. When you say the being will not give you more than you can handle, I cannot see how this is true. When many people have fatal and tragic ends, such as all those who commit suicide, how can one reconcile these opposites? The sad reality is that people, first off, don't have the teaching. This is changing, obviously, because of the different websites and videos and lectures and courses that are given openly to humanity. So this knowledge is now more, more accessible than it ever has been. But at the same time, there is more conflict and pressure and suffering on this planet than there has ever been. When I was referring to the fact that the being gives us 
what we can handle. I'm referring to when people are really diligent with chastity. That energy is the conduit, the key that allows your being to act within you. And it might seem blasphemous, but divinity cannot help us if we can't help ourselves. If we don't have that foundation with the creative energy, then obviously we can't be guided. That sexual energy is the power to create. And when we give it to divinity, he and she uses that power in order to handle our situation and can therefore manage our karma in a way that's really intelligent because we are really a part of divinity, the being. We are the consciousness that has the ability to either follow divine will or egotistical will. But without that foundation, divinity really cannot enter into us. And so we have to suffer the consequences of our actions. And obviously people who commit suicide is, you're suffering terribly, have suffered terribly. But people have a choice in how they behave ethically. The solution is if people are suffering that type of trauma or feel suicidal, obviously to get professional help uh, to, at one point. I mean, I've known instructors and even people in, with whom I teach, who have some professional background in mental health. We've given a course on mental health and our spiritual mental health on our website, chicagonosis.org. We're going to talk more in depth about these types of problems. But people who commit suicide are really, you know, because of really strong egos have disconnected themselves severely. And therefore, because they can't connect with divinity, They've squandered the energies that can really give them divine communion. They for, therefore feel very lost. And therefore, they've killed themselves, committed many errors. This is very sad. And the way to resolve this issue is to teach people how to work with the energy that gives life emotionally, mentally, psychologically, spiritually. Once you work with the creative energy, then divinity handles your circumstances. Takes it upon himself in order to manage the karma that inevitably you would have to pay with pain. We have a question. Could you speak with some more detail about how to reach the Jin state and a reference to any instructors who have had success? So the Jin state is a practice in which you, similar to astral projection, enter the internal worlds. With astral projection, it's something very common. People do it all the time, but unconsciously. Physically, you go to sleep, and your consciousness leaves the body and enters the world of dreams, the fifth dimension in the Kabbalah, known as Hog, the astral world. However, people tend to go in that dimension unconsciously in order to to experience their dreams, their projections of a subconscious state before returning to the body, either remembering nothing or maybe having some scattered remnants of some recollections, some inner experiences or dreams, which tend to be very conditioned and dimmed. Jin science is much more different. Actually, we could say in Jin science, you take your physical body and enter the astral world, the internal world. You enter with your physical body into hyperspace, the fourth dimension. Now, 
the fourth dimension relates to the etheric world, Yasad and Kabbalah. It is the vital sexual creative energy. It is the energetic potential that permeates all of space and is the functionality of time itself. The fourth dimension is time and space, hyperspace. It is the energy that permeates all of physical matter, which you find reflected in even the mountains, such as the blue color of the earth, which is the etheric vital aura and depth of the physical earth itself. And all of our physical bodies have a vital body itself. It's what gives us chemistry, vitality, metabolism, catabolism, digestion, circulation, all the life and vital forces that we have in our body are the realization of our vital depth. And certain medicines like in Taoist practice or acupuncture, they study the vital body very well. But in a deeper sense, you can learn to integrate your physical body through the vital conduit of your etheric double in order to enter the fourth dimension with your physical body. There's different practices you can do. Primarily, you rely on your divine mother and a lot of faith. This is something that's usually very or considered very uh, with a lot of doubt by people because it sounds very fantastic. But an example of such jinn science is in the story of Prophet Muhammad, who ascended the seven heavens with his physical body. He traveled from Mecca to Jerusalem by meditating on the kebab, the stone, which is a symbol of working with that vital energy, the creative sexual force. And he went physically, and this is a commonly accepted belief amongst many Muslims, but it's something that any one of us can verify through experience. Jinn science is something very sacred and it's not displayed to the public because it's a very private thing. People are very skeptical and have a lot of materialistic doubts about how can one travel with the physical body into the internal world. It's something that seems very outlandish. But if you study and practice the techniques and the writings of Salman Vior, he gives different ways of approaching that science, all of it which comes from working with the creative sexual energy. Personally, I have worked with Jin Science and I've had results. I'm not going to talk about what I experienced because it's too sacred, but it works. Question, how can I strengthen my willpower against lust? I recommend you work with the Rune Dorn. Study the runes, such as in the Magic of the Runes by Samalan Vior. The Rune Dorn is exceptional. It is the rune or energetic yogic exercise by which you adopt the posture with your right hand on your right hip, heels together in the military style, left hand at your side. You pray to your inner divinity to give you inner strength, to teach you willpower of Christ's divine will so as to help you overcome lust. This rune helps you to transmute energy, helps you to accumulate crystal force, atoms of a high voltage, charges your vitality, your physicality, your mind, your heart your willpower. Your arm forms like a hammer relating to Dorn, Donner, the god of war, who is four, we could say, in the Nordic mythology, but also the Holy Spirit. He is the god of war against desire. You do mantras ta, te, ti, to, to, prolonged. Prolong the mantras, focus on the vibration in your chakras, Study especially that book, Magic of the Runes, 
that exercise is, an ex is exceptional for helping you to train your body, your mind, and your heart to work against lust. We have a question. Are you able to speak of the Wim Hof method as a breathing technique? Is it a form of moving energy and also the cold therapy to learn from your body and how to manage its instincts? I know some people who practice Wim Hof method. Uh, I personally have not myself, so I can't really comment. Uh, I know there's some similar parallels in other teachings like Duma Yoga, where people learn to maintain their physical heat despite cold weather and adversity. Uh, there's some really tangible, concrete examples of how that is actually fulfilled. But as for Wim Hof, it's not something I personally practice with, so I can't comment. We have a question. As we seek answers from our being, how can we differentiate the answer of our being from our ego? It's a good question. I just gave a lecture for the Sufi Principles of Meditation course called Certainty and Insight, where one of the quotes that really stands out to me from the writings of the Sufis is a saying by Mansur al-Halaj. He stated something along the lines that the first intuition that arrives within your consciousness in relation to an experience is the answer. If your mind and ego struggles and debates about it, it is probably a projection of your mind in relation to the first question, the first concern. We learn to differentiate the messages of divinity and from our ego by reflecting on first the experience we're considering and if it's an internal experience and message from dreams, we have to analyze, one, the emotional impact of the dream, the psychological impression, and then two, it's symbology. What are the archetypes present in the dream? What are the symbols and the dramas associated with those symbols? This is why we need to study the doctrine, because we learn the general significance of certain internal representations and archetypes, so that when we experience them and we feel that natural longing in the soul, that there's something deep and meaningful here, then we can learn to interpret without the interference of the ego. But the only way that you can differentiate and discriminate what you perceive is by putting your ego completely aside. So if you're struggling to understand your inner experiences, you should learn to suspend your senses, really develop serenity first, calmness of mind, equanimity. Let your mind settle, abandon your body, your heart, your mind, let it all be still. And then direct your will and visualize the experience. When you're looking at the experience without any type of anticipation or projection of the mind, any type of aversion, the insight and intuition emerges spontaneously, usually in combination with another experience, something that can compound and add to your understanding of the dream, but also you know, you gain insight as a result of putting everything subjective aside. There's no other way. And be patient because it takes practice. But when you really develop suspension of the senses, suspension of the mind and heart, and really concentrate your will with serenity and peace, you can start to see things in a new way. Have a question where can we access this recording i unfortunately arrived late these lectures are uploaded to chicagognosis.org you'll see in the bottom of the, when the main page if you scroll down we usually have updates in terms of new lectures that are posted 
Question, how does one work with their sexual energy when they're celibate or does not have a partner? We have many exercises for single people. I know a lot of people get concerned when they study The Perfect Matrimony by Samal Dior, where he talks about how a marriage is necessary for entering the higher stages of initiation, but this does not mean that single people cannot begin to work. Celibacy itself, merely restraining the sexual energy is one thing, which a lot of people do practice in the traditions of yoga, but unfortunately, what's lacking from those methods is the keys and practices to transmute the energy when one is conserving it. You can study The Perfect Matrimony, especially by Samalan Dior. You can also read The Yellow Book, where you can learn practices of pranayama. Pranayama is the method by which you interchangeably breathe through your nostrils in order to circulate the sexual energy. So as a single person, you can practice this daily for as long as you want. No danger in that. In fact, the more the merrier. Uh, the more energy you have, the better calmness of mind you'll experience, especially when you're controlling and working when you're in your ethics. The Yellow Book especially is good. Kundalini Yoga by Samalan Vyar is exceptional for that, for single people. And you can also study a lecture we gave on chicagognosis.org called Pranayama Sexual Transmutation. It's in the Gnostic Meditation course. Good question. Might you speak on the difference in discrimination between judging another and letting another know what you observe in them for their benefit? I think the, I think the important thing to remember is that we should be very judgmental with ourselves and very cautious with how we approach other people. If we have even a tinge of desire in our action, it's going to be corrupt, even if our observation is right. So we have to learn to balance our interactions with people with internal work. We can only really benefit another person when we know how to communicate with them in relation to their inner world. Nietzsche even said something very beautifully in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. The smallest cleft is the most difficult to bridge. And he was talking about relationships with people. We may not be far away from someone. We could be face-to-face -face with a person. And our minds can be worlds apart. So since our mind is 97% ego, we have to be very cautious because we're going to probably be judging the other person, even if we do see things that are objective. But if you have the time and ability and circumstance to help someone, and if they ask for your help, especially, then offer your observations with, without coercion, just being open and honest and sincere, but following your intuition because your heart will tell you the right way to behave, not the mind. We have a question. If divinity cannot help those who help themselves, how do we help them and hold compassion without it becoming enablement? With this teaching, we learn to be vehicles of divinity. And through our example, we learn to help others become vehicles of their divinity. So if someone is suffering and because we have the knowledge and have some training, with these methods, we can learn to really be efficacious with people. So we have to have compassion for people, but also know effective ways of helping others. Obviously we have different careers and I know some people have worked in jobs where helping people is very difficult. 
because certain conditions and circumstances are so disastrous and catastrophic. Compassion does not mean complacency. When you really love someone and if you're really effective with it, we don't enable people to commit harm. Meaning we act in a way that's going to enable their consciousness to act virtuously, to speak to people's soul. If we're just watching people suffer and not do anything about it, obviously there's a problem. But if you want to know how to help people best, it really depends on whatever the circumstance is, whatever the problem is. This is why we have to put our mind aside. We have to really develop conscious clairvoyance, understanding of others, by understanding our own internal worlds first. But in many cases, sometimes the divinity of a person can't help them because there's just so much ego and there's just so much conditions there. But let me rem remind you of the story of Belzebub and how Samal and Vyar helped convert him. You can read it, the Revolution of Belzebub, where Samal communicated with the innermost of this prince of demons in the internal world. And his inner being said, the being of Belzebub, that he is trying to help his soul, but can't because he's not listening to him. And therefore needed help from Samal and Vyar to help teach that soul. So we can become the vehicle by which divinity speaks to another person. But for that, we need to get out of the way, let divinity act through us. And that way we don't enable people and really do our best to diminish harmful circumstances. So there's an add on to the question. I'm specifically referring to the mentally ill and addicted and homeless population, which is growing larger by the day in many cities. So yeah, that's a very challenging job. Um, I've known one Austin instructor who, who actually was a mental health coach, counselor, who eventually made the decision to leave that type of job because it was very draining. It can be very challenging. But if it's your mission or a person's mission to do that kind of work, obviously there's more honor in that, especially when it's a very humiliating and difficult job. So people who are mentally ill, obviously have to be treated uh, professionally, but also we have many spiritual methods that we use in our tradition that can help. You can study the book Sexology, The Basis of Endocrinology and Criminology by Samuel and Muir, but also you can study our ongoing course on spiritual and mental health, where we're going to approach this issue more didactically, because there's a lot of people who are working in these fields who need help. So there was a previous question uh, about how do we discriminate the difference between judging another person and letting another know what you observe in them for their benefit. This question continues. I ask because since we are generally 97% ego, we will not have great problems in discrimination. Sometimes the situation does not easily allow for the time to fully comprehend in all the levels of the mind. Is this where we need to forgive and be patient with ourselves? Acknowledging the sincere desire to help while also understanding that egos are functioning in that as well. Yes, be patient with yourself. Don't beat yourself up. You made a mistake. Okay, learn from it. Make the changes that you can. We have to be hard on the ego, but we, have to, we also have to know when to really be calm in our mind and heart. Forgive ourselves for our errors. 
We have a question. How do we grow and have faith in our being and keep hope despite the darkness, especially when we are so blind, deaf, and ignorant? Having real hope and the strength to keep going is hard when our being has isolated us from others and we cannot see the changes that in us we know we intuitively know we need and we are struggling. Doing deep ego work is exhausting, realizing how we lie to ourselves and how our ego hit is it was an attempt to help ourselves. We look for love, etc. But of course, the ego can never do this, and it causes more problems. When we have no to little contact with others, not of our own choice, but keeping faith and hope is hard. Even with bread and wine, uh, the Eucharist, the ritual of the Gnostic function, it's difficult. The work hurts, and realizing all our mistakes, foolishness, and facing our pain is difficult, etc. My suggestion is that whenever we become very morbid, filled with pessimism and doubt and pain, shame or loneliness, a feeling of incipience or inadequacy, we have to go into meditation. Not because it's something that we frequently are told to do, but from necessity. We gave a lecture in the Sufi principles of meditation called repentance. We talked a lot about in that lecture precisely this question. How when we are overwhelmed with pain and we feel no, see no light at the end of the tunnel, we have to recognize and remember certain principles in relation to repentance because having remorse is one thing. It's necessary. But having shame and morbidity is something else. It's an egotistical quality. The truth is that when you discover egos in yourself and that they are separate from you, the consciousness feels joy. There is great happiness in the cathedral of the soul for one who has repented. Because a person who has never made a mistake cannot celebrate as much as one who failed before and then changed. There is great joy when we recognize our faults from the consciousness, not from an ego, not from the mind labeling and calling this a terrible defect that I'm a horrible person, I'm a failure as a Gnostic, or I'm not good enough for this teachings, etc. That's all lies. Don't listen to your mind. Study the chapter in the revolution, uh, Treatise of Revolutionary Psychology called Negative Thoughts. It's a powerful chapter which addresses everything that you've talked about. So... Usually when we're alone by ourselves, the worst egos emerge. The only resolution that you will find, the only peace you will find is by remembering God. If you just focus on your defects, if you're just focusing on your aggregates, your own desires and faults and feelings, then we become one-sided. We have to really reflect on both sides of the issue. Reflect on your virtues. Reflect on those things that you do well. Meditate on compassion. Meditate on love. Meditate on happiness. Contentment, even despite adversity. Reflect on your consciousness because if you just focus on your own negative states of mind, we can become very imbalanced and this is harmful. So focus on both in balance and harmony. There's a question. 
Where can we find details regarding the Vajwali Mudra energy, uh, energizing exercise? You find that in Sacred Rites of Rejuvenation by, uh, by Samalan Bior. Okay, any other questions? I thank you all for attending and I wish you a wonderful rest of your night. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.